Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to Branching Out, an upbeat, friend-building, Christian-uniting ministry. We discuss topics concerning our faith, review Christian news, do a devotion, offer prayers and praise that you share with us. Never be alone. You can uh, join us on our website, branchliving.com, or through Facebook at Branch Living, and there we have an international community, and it would be a privilege to have you join us. There you can comment, post photos, prayer requests, praise reports. So do join us on Facebook at Branch Living. There today, I noticed we've got quite an active discussion about people's favorite old-time hymns. So if you'd like to join in on that discussion, just jump in. We've got people from different countries, uh, pretty interesting discussion going on. Also, always know you can email your prayer requests and praise reports to me at lisa at branchliving.com. We do try to podcast twice each week, and one of those messages is always our Branch Living message. But we have now started a new process where once a week we go into a Bible study class, and we do this um, both for the members of our Bible study who aren't able to be with us, but also for all of you who want to follow along. And just as a reminder, um, my husband, Pastor Hal, leads this Bible study. And so the format that we use here together is I read the scripture and then I ask him a variety of different questions. And we then kind of talk through the answer and what our thoughts are. And then we end in prayer. So it's just an informal uh, kind of a deep dive into the scripture itself. So before we get started today, why don't we join in prayer together at this time so just take a deep breath and relax and enter the presence of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We especially, Father, thank you for your word. We know that your word is pure and good and trustworthy and foundational. And we know that we can build our lives on that. It really is a solid rock. And we thank you for this and we praise you for this. We thank you that you give us such an easy way to connect with you but also a very deep and meaningful way of being able to enter deeper and deeper into the Spirit each time we read it. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as you remember, last time uh, when we left off, uh, Lazarus had just left the tomb. And um, that was something that was, of course, completely miraculous. Of course, never had uh, anybody seen a dead man who had been dead for four days uh, be resurrected bodily from a tomb. And of course, this is now creating quite a stir. So if you would like to join us, we are in John 11, 47 through 57. We're going to be finishing up John 11 today. I am reading out of the English Standard Version, but um, any version you'll be able to follow along. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered, gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come, and they will take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this out of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation alone, but also 
to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country of Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to this feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So we can see immediately, uh, Pastor Hal, that uh, no good deed that Jesus does ever goes unpunished, right? Right. And um, so again, we have now this miracle, this miracle that you would think would cause awe and wonder and just people looking at Lazarus and saying, you know, you truly are God. And uh, this is not the reaction that they are having at this point. So can you describe for me just a little bit of what we're seeing here? Just kind of give your perspective on why we're not seeing, um, you know, this, the, the, the Jewish leaders, the rabbis come together and be in awestruck and now starting to turn toward Jesus. Instead, they are more repulsed and uh, now are determined to take him down. Well, I think that their opposition to Jesus is pretty much what people's opposition is even today to Christ and his message, because it interferes with their agenda, with, with their priorities with their the things they value and um, everything that they value is threatened by what they fear the consequences will be if the people follow Jesus now notice they they aren't really interested in whether or not he is the Messiah whether he really is the Son of God that isn't their concern at all the question is what do the people think and what's going to happen if the people follow Jesus? So, so we see that the ones who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the people, they're not even asking a spiritual question. You know, their, their question is entirely political and, and, uh, and self-serving. That is also. a very good point that they aren't asking anything spiritual. They, in fact, all they are asking are questions like, what are we to do? Right. Um, you know, this man, they, you know, they flat out say, this man performs many signs. I mean, they aren't, they aren't denying that the signs are there. Uh, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So, yeah, you're right. There's nothing here that is a faith-based question. Right. So, looking at the Sanhedrin then, uh, can you kind of discuss the different factions that make up the Sanhedrin and why each of them wants to be rid of Jesus? Well, the, uh, there are two factions, essentially, that make up the Sanhedrin. They're the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who normally didn't get along. And so you had, they had some serious differences. The, the Pharisees, ironically, were the religious people. They were the ones who really were spiritually inclined. At least in its beginning, the Pharisaic movement was a reform movement, 
kind of like the Protestant Reformation was in the Christian church. Um, the original Pharisees were concerned that people weren't seeking God and they weren't concerned with God's law. And at the time, was that true? I mean, what, what, were they onto something? Yeah, they were onto something. Now, this goes back beyond the time of Jesus. But yes, they were the ones that felt you should really take God's word seriously and you should try to live by it every day. And, and you should seek a relationship with God. And they felt that that relationship with God, and they wanted to please God, and they felt that the way to please God and have that relationship was to take God's law serious, God's word seriously enough that you lived, it, lived every moment of your life by that word. So that was still what they were looking for. They wanted a chance to live according to every detail of the law, and they went like, to the most meticulous detail. We've talked about that before. Um, but then there were the Sadducees. Then the Sadducees were not spiritual at all. The Sadducees were wealthy aristocrats. The, the, the aristocratic class were, were, were Sadducees. Because they were wealthy and because they were, you know, their priority was to maintain their wealth and their social power so they collaborated with the romans you know they 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 were friends with the romans they collaborated with the romans so that they would stay you know maintain their place in the social order and and keep their wealth and their property um, were they considered religious leaders Yes, they were religious leaders, but mostly because of their social position. They, they were the, um, they had their place, essentially they were the ones who actually controlled the high priesthood also. Um, so, so what are the Sanhedrin afraid of at this point? So the Sanhedrin are afraid that if the people follow Jesus and Jesus decides to be the messianic leader that, it, that the people want, that he will lead them in a revolt against Rome. The soldier, the Roman army will come in, put down the revolt, remove the, <laughs> remove the uh, Sadducees, from power because they have failed to control the people. Um, and if it, if it turns violent enough and bloody enough, the Romans might even come in and destroy the temple. That's where the, Pharisee, where the Pharisees come in because the temple is the center of their worship. And, and these men who are seeking to fulfill the laws and serve God meticulously, they will no longer have a temple in which to do it. So they don't want to lose the temple. They don't want to lose their political standing. They don't want to lose their nation, which they still have, even though it's controlled by the Romans. And, and so then why do the Pharisees want to get rid of Jesus? Well, they actually think that he is... They don't believe he really is the Son of God. They believe he's an imposter and, and uh, that... Essentially, he's a, he's a counterfeit. He, he's uh, misleading the people. 
um, they believe he's a false prophet and if the people follow him they're going to bring God's anger down for having given into this uh, false leader I guess you could say that to use Christian terms they see him as the Antichrist <laughs> right. they see him as it is the false messiah that's leading the people away. Right. No, that's a good point. So um, I, I think you pointed out in our Bible study how, you know, God oftentimes speaks through unbelievers. And certainly that happens here with Caiaphas, where Caiaphas is, you know, making statements that will be, um, that are true, but true in a different way than he had intended. So, um, he, Caiaphas says, um, uh, let's see, uh, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. Um, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, um, you know, that's, a, that's quite a moment when God uses people who are in no way members of his uh, faithful to speak words of truth to his faithful. Yes, so what Caiaphas really meant to say was it's better that one man die rather than the nation perish. But what God put into his mouth was for the people you know he meant you know we've got to get rid of this one person in order to save the nation but when he said die for the people that is why god sent jesus to earth was to die not only for the jewish people but as, as john goes on to comment there that he intended christ to die for all the people in the world um so what actually comes out of Caiaphas's mouth is probably not what he intended to say. It's more than he intended to say. And of course, looking back at it historically, you know, Christian, you know, the faithful disciples and, and others looking back on his death and resurrection realized that he had become the atoning victim for the, you know, dying for the sins of the world. Um, it's really a prophecy. So it's a prophecy of why Jesus is going to be crucified, but he didn't even realize what he was saying and probably didn't intend for those particular words to come out. Right, right. So then, um, just concluding the chapter, then Jesus then um, does not any longer walk openly among the Jews. He now goes uh, into the wilderness or near the wilderness in a town called Ephraim, and there he stays with the disciples. Um, the Passover was at hand, and so many are going up to Jerusalem. And John really finishes this chapter and leaves everyone in suspense. You know, he kind of has a little cliffhanger here where he says, uh, what will Jesus do? Rumors are flying. Um, so is there anything like this that you can think of in our own time right now? Well, there, there are always rumors, you know, the... You know, it, I think in terms of 
You mean in terms of what Jesus is going to do or in terms of other people in the world? Well, I think, you know, just the cliffhanger where people are saying, what do you think? Is he going to come to the feast at all? And what we had talked about in our Bible study was how this question really is in every generation. You know, is he coming back? Is oh, he going yes, to be exactly. here? Is yeah. he, and, and this is kind of a question for the ages that, that starts right here where he is, people are saying, you know, what do you think? Is he going to come to the feast at all? Now he's there in body form, but it, but here in our own generations, we often say the same thing. Do, what do you think when things start to get bad? Well, you know, yes. Is Jesus coming back? Yes. Um, and again, some people are hoping that he'll come back. Some people are hoping that he won't come back, uh, depending on, you know, in this case, though, it's the opposite. Today, it's the Christian, you know, it's believers in Christ who are hoping he will come back. There are others who hope that he doesn't. But in his day, probably his supporters are hoping, well, I don't know, they have mixed feelings. Some of them are probably hoping he'll stay away because they don't want him to get arrested. But on the other hand, some of them are probably hoping he will come back and take on the Pharisees. Everyone knows that this is a corrupt bunch of people that are running the uh, temple and, and the um, religious establishment. And some of them are probably hoping he'll come back and take them on. And others are hoping that he'll stay low and not get himself arrested and, and, and uh, worse. So we have those same emotions today, though, too, in, in very many different ways, where we really want it to be with the Messiah. But um, for many reasons, sometimes we want that to be delayed in our own yeah, lives. Yeah, we have things going on in our own lives. We're not ready to have come to an end, you know. Right. Or we look, you know, some people look at their families. I hear this in one of the Bible studies that I participate in, and they look in their own families and they say, don't come yet because these people in my family aren't saved. They haven't had a chance yet. You know, they haven't come to their their moment yet. And so they certainly are not looking forward to Jesus coming right then until their family members are saved. And um, But there are many people, you know, there are two that I was just talking to this weekend who are just, you know, ready to go see Jesus and ready to be part of his world. So I think that uh, this is really a question for the ages different because of course they're talking about him being in the body and is he coming to the feast but you know kind of moving away from that and looking at it in terms of our own lives you know the questions that we ask about is he going to be there and when is he going to be there so and it, it's a point of self-examination following up on what you're saying we probably should examine our own selves and ask ourselves if we are hoping he isn't coming back, why? Mm -hmm. And if we're hoping he is coming back, why? You know, what are... Right, are those what, motives? What, what are the motives, what are, why do we feel the way we do about such a basic, such an important question? Yeah, exactly. And I'm not saying there's a right way or a wrong way to feel, but it'd be a good way of knowing where we are in our own relationship with Christ to know what it is that we fear and what it is that we hope for right so yeah on that note we're just gonna leave everybody right there and i think it's a good thing for us all to reflect on this week as we go through our week um you know how what is our feeling about jesus's return and are we hoping for that dreading it neutral on it um wanting it but not quite yet uh where are we with that moment so we'll, we'll stop there. We have now concluded John 11, and we end that chapter with that cliffhanger, and we will begin again next time with John 12. So um, 
Again, we are so grateful that you have joined us for this very brief Bible study, and uh, we do want to end this with prayer. But before we do, I want to remind you that you can always email your prayer request to me at lisa at branchliving.com, or you can go on the Facebook site and post them there. Um, and we would uh, really enjoy the opportunity to pray for you. So I'm going to end the prayer again um, with and end the gathering today with this prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for giving a moment to each of us to do kind of a deep dive into your word. Your word is living. Your word is breathing. As we can see, uh, as we discuss this, that it was relevant then. It is relevant now and uh, that it just poses kinds of questions for us. It really puts a mirror up to us every time we look into it to say, and where are you? And where are you? And so, Father, we thank you that you leave us with this question about where are we in terms of our own hopes and dreams of Jesus's return. We thank you for this fellowship. We thank you for this time away. And we thank you for giving us the opportunity to reach out to people in different countries, different areas, um, and that we all come together as a Christian family and that we will be together one day as that family. We pray this in your name. Amen. So thank you again for joining us. And until we meet again, stay close to God, stay in touch, and we will chat with you again soon.